I've written songs that I thought were, I thought were awesome. Like I thought, man, that cause they came from right inside of me and they mean a lot to me. And, uh, and I, then I'll go and take them out on the road and I'll play them at five or 10 shows and they fall flat. And I'm like, eh, that one needs to be either worked on or maybe it doesn't, maybe it needs to be discarded. But I would have never known that. I would have, I thought it was a great song. This is Commonplace, the show about creative people and the things that inspire them. I'm Nathan Thomas. Today on the show, we have artist and musician Abe Partridge. To paraphrase something Abe says in the interview, when he doesn't feel like writing songs, he'll paint. When he doesn't feel like painting, he'll write songs. And when he doesn't feel like doing either, he goes from his home in Mobile, Alabama to serpent handling churches. His latest album was released earlier this year. It's called Love in the Dark. Last year, along with his friend Farrell Gibbs, he released a podcast called Alabama Astronaut, where he helps document music found in a group of churches that have been known more for serpent handling than their music. In our conversation, we talk about him coming to know members of these churches, how sometimes the best artistic process is having no definitive process, and when he first started performing in the Huntington area. But we start with the moment when the music of songwriters like Bob Dylan and Towns Van Zandt click for him uh, well, I can tell you when it was 2007 that's when we got high-speed internet during that uh, and during that year I was like between 26 and 27 years old I was born in 1980 so um, <clears throat> yeah before that I mean I I reckon that I had heard it at some point but it didn't you know it didn't mean nothing to me uh it that was a, you know it was just songs have come up come songs came to me at certain times in my life you know whenever uh yeah i heard bob dylan sing it uh blowing in the wind you know and uh how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man and uh you know just lines lines like that that are that are just pregnant with so much uh meaning that you can unpack from them and uh it was it was mind-blowing and uh it hit me also at a very dark time in my life where i was struggling with words was that around about when you started writing songs or uh i think you mentioned buying a banjo in a pawn shop yeah, no, I had I had already been in. I'd been picking banjo since I was eighteen, but I uh, I primarily just played banjo and um, and uh, I'd learned to play uh, bluegrass style guitar and and stuff like that. And I played in church settings mostly. And then uh, then yeah, when I when I was when I was in my mid twenties, that's when I started writing. You know, that's when I found Bob Dylan and. Towns Van Zant, John Prine, and all those guys, and that's when uh, that's when I discovered them. You know, they were all new to me. I didn't, I didn't grow up in a. Uh, my my dad listened to rock and roll music, you know, and uh, it was like the Stones and the Beatles and uh, Hendrix and the Doors and stuff like that. I knew about all that, and then you know, my my mom through my mom, I knew about 
gospel music. And um, then, then whenever I was in my mid twenties, that's when I found like melodies and lyrics mixed together in ways that delivered messages that are more profound than you could ever speak. When you were uh, starting off kind of in that, like finding Dylan writing songs type moment, did you find similarities between like the goals of writing a sermon and the goals of writing a song? Like, did they connect in some way of like, Oh, I'm trying to find a way to get this message. I want to get across across. I think it does now that not like when I, when I approach songwriting now, sometimes I do attempt to do that. But in those days, no, it was primarily just for, uh, it was it was a way for me to find um, solace in uh, in what was an otherwise very dark time. Um, you know, I was I was in a state of collapse, and so um, and and in addition to that collapse, I had a wife and two children that relied on me for. Uh, well, numerous things in addition to income. And uh, I knew that the ram I, I knew that the ramifications of my leaving the ministry were going to be um, basically a complete reboot at 20, at 27 years old with, um, you know, no marketable skill of any type. Did you grow up in Mobile too, or what was growing up like for you? I grew up in a town, a little, a little town called Sims. And then, uh, it's, uh, it's in Mobile County, but it's, it was, you know, when I was, when I was young, we had to drive like 45 minutes into Mobile to, uh, you know, but now uh, Sims is kind of like essentially a suburb of Mobile. It's grown up so much in the past 40 years. It's almost Mississippi, really. But uh, then when I was seven, my mom and my dad split. And so I divided my time between Sims and then my mom would come out there and get me and bring me in to, you know, into Mobile. And then I go back out. So I, I kind of grew up. Uh, in between Sims and Mobile, my up until I was eighteen. Did they have much of a uh, artistic community or art scene there when you were growing up, or did that all come later? There, there, there was one. I was not a part of it. Uh, yeah, I knew nothing about. Uh, I was. I never knew anything about. I never knew an artist. I don't think I ever in my whole life met a met somebody who made a living in the arts uh up until i started doing it myself really you know we uh my dad uh you know uh he's he's you know just like uh he's just there my, my parents were both just working middle class working folks you know my mom was a school teacher so we we just uh, kind of grew up not really around arts or nothing. I kind of had the, the same thing, too, where 
there was like an arts thing going on in Charleston. I just wasn't a part of it. It was all separate from whatever I was into. Yeah, I'm, I primarily like played ball and stuff, you know, and uh, and the kids that um, that I was acquainted with were we we all played ball and uh, you know I, I I don't know man it just never you know back you know the this would have been the nineties it was different than now you know you you kind of you heard music on the radio <laughs> you know that's like uh, you was either into rock and roll or country or 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 R and B hip hop stuff you know it was like there that was the three stations so. You know, I grew up listening to the rock and roll station. So you're really coming into this career as an artist, kind of building it without any examples to go to. You're just making it what you want it to be. Well, I mean, so I started painting and I started writing when I was in my mid twenties, but I wasn't, I wasn't do, I didn't start doing any of it publicly. Like I had my very first. I had my very first public performance of my music when I was 35. And uh, and then I didn't show my art until February 2018. That's when I first started showing my art publicly. So I, you know, I never had any intention of of um, making art as 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 what people would call a career. Which is I, which is just two things that I don't think should ever even be mentioned next to art and career. But you know, just in the current, and you know, the way the world works, uh, I guess people could call it that. But no, I was never a part of a community of artists. So yeah, I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have anybody tell me what I was doing was wrong, which is what they would have told me when I started. But. Uh, but, you know, I look back now and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I wasn't a part of a community of songwriters. And I know that's a damn crazy thing for a, for a songwriter to say at this juncture in my life. But, like, I'm really happy that I wrote songs for eight years without, without being told that it wasn't right. And I'm really glad that I painted for, like, a decade without anybody trying to critique it you know, cause it didn't matter. And, 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 and because of that, that time I was able to make, so I was able to kind of like, just figure out how I like to do stuff. And, and, and as far as it's like what people might call, uh, like, uh, it's commercial appeal or whatever. I had no desire to, to make any of it commercial to begin with, you know? No, you're just going off your own instinct of what you wanted to yeah. make. Yeah, and and at, so as a result, I was able to keep my motives pure, which like it, it's always the thing that I struggle with at this juncture in my life is that now that I'm, you know, I got a wife and now I have three children, you know, and uh, this is what I do to put food on the table and to pay the rent in this house and to buy my vehicle. And like, uh, it's trying, it's, it's me trying to maintain that purity within my own heart about only, you know, only making what 
excites me. What's nice about there being such a gap between you starting to write and you starting to perform and starting to paint and people starting to see them too, is I feel like with social media, the instinct is to like make something and immediately put it out there and try to get likes on Instagram or whatever. Uh, especially like early on in your artistic career, like you'll have people writing songs and putting them out when like, it might be one of the first couple songs they're putting out and like, they're not ready yet. They haven't fine tuned those skills or anything. And they're maybe doing it a little too soon when if they wait just a little bit and work at it a little harder, they'll be much better by the time they are ready, like to put stuff yeah, out. Yeah, and I, I, that, that's one thing I tell a, a lot of a lot of artists that are just starting out. It's like, wait a minute, you know, you don't have to have like my buddies here in in town, uh, the Red Clay Strays. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but uh, they're a uh, we we kindly started out here in town together. In fact, their guitar player just lives right down the road. But um, they, I think they just, they had a, maybe it wasn't totally by design, but they did it. I mean, they toured for four or five years before releasing their first album. And as a result, it went to the top 10 and the iTunes country charts and all that. Like they, and they, you know, they're, they're killing it now. And it's like, man, that's so much better than just like, Oh, I've got a thousand likes on my on my video on YouTube. Let me go make a record that you're not even going to be proud of in a couple of years because you're going to be so much. You're going to have learned so much over that period of time through playing and seeing what songs resonate with people and what songs that you have that may not resonate with people. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, that's what I do, buddy. You know, I, I, I don't record my songs on a record until I've played them at least 50 to 100 times in front of people because I've written songs that I thought were, I thought were awesome. Like I thought, man, because they came from right inside of me and they mean a lot to me. And uh, and I, then I'll go and take them out on the road and I'll play them at five or 10 shows and they fall flat. And I'm like, eh, that one needs to be either worked on or maybe it doesn't maybe it needs to be discarded but i would have never known that. i would have i thought it was a great song but uh it just you don't know until you get it out there and work it out it's the same thing with uh my stand-up shows where you think you have the funniest joke in the world <laughs> yeah. but if an audience doesn't laugh then then you're gonna have to put that in the throwaway pile absolutely buddy absolutely and you can never tell what's going to kill or not before you get up there on stage and do it right with your writing too are you a lyrics first guy or like a melody guy first most of the time it's lyrics you know i'll have something that i want to say and i will have or a particular line that really that i've that you know has come to me that's fell and fell from the heavens into my head sometimes that happens and then i'll just write a song around it you know then I, sometimes i get a melody first but it's rare i don't 
I don't try to, I don't try to have a formula. That's another part of that thing. I'm saying I never had a, I never had a formula for the first eight years when I was writing songs. And, uh, I just wrote when I had to. And so when I started doing this professionally or whatever, and say, God, I even hate saying that. But when I started, when I started actually paying my rent by playing music, I got a feeling where it's like, oh man, I got to, I got to start like formula, formalizing this. And it never led to anything good. And, uh, at least nothing that I was like overly passionate about. And so, you know, I was just like, yeah, I mean, I got, I got here without a formula and I, if I can't maintain it without a formula, then I just don't need to maintain it. But it's like, it's, uh, it, I mean, this is all, you know, art from my perspective, which it doesn't have to be applicable to everybody else. Like I've got friends and that write songs and that's the, what they do. They do it via formula and I'm not criticizing anything that anybody else does or anything that works for anybody else. I'm only talking about, you know, art from the way I see it and the way that I, the way that it, the way that I'm comfortable with it. And that's that I, I just can't formalize it. I just have to, I have to do it as it comes or else it just ends up. Um, it has to move me first. You have to like almost pull it out of the ether when it's calling for you instead of trying to pursue it. Absolutely. Yeah. And see, I'm fortunate in that. Uh, I like to create in a lot of different ways. And so I guess, you know, if my life, if my life was consumed with just one form of, of, of artistic creation, then maybe it would be different, but I get to paint when I don't want to write and I get to write when I don't want to paint. And then I get to go to serpent handling church whenever I don't want to do either one of those, you know, uh, then I get, I, I just do, I just do stuff when I feel led to do it and it's worked this far <laughs> and it might all end in a catastrophe, but at least it's working so far. It's made everything feel like a genuine exploration of just something true rather than you kind of chasing it. I, 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 or maybe chasing it's not the right way to word it, but just it instead of like calculated almost like you're going for whatever you're thinking or feeling in the moment instead of putting down a plan and hitting all these bullet points in this formula. Yeah. Yeah. I hate plans, dude. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate them on a grand scale and I hate them on a small scale. Like I don't make a set list when I make, when I play music, I hate it, you know, and, uh, you know, like I've had to do it, you know, I've had to play shows. I've had to do television things, radio things where you kind of have to like, that that's not when I'm at my best, you know, when I'm at my best is whenever I'm like, and when I'm at my best in performance is whenever I just sit down and I don't know what I'm going to play until the minute I start doing it. And that's the way I try to play all my shows. And that's the way all my best shows work out. 
I'm at, I'm at my best when I'm painting, whenever I just sit down and put a piece of tar in front of me and I just get the paints out. That's when I make my best work. If I think about what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it, it usually turns out to be really shitty. Yeah, whenever someone asks me about the process of whatever I'm doing, I just kind of have to go, I don't know, I just kind of do it. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like such a, a non-answer, but I don't have a better answer than that. It's just I thought of a idea and I tried to see it through. I don't know what else to tell you. That's it, man. Well, you know, the world the world needs to have mystery in it. It's fun that way. It like the whole like to to get into almost like the the church adjacent aspect or whatever, but like the mystery and the wonder of like do I think or believe these things happen or whatever in the Bible? Like to me, the joy isn't in knowing the answers. It's sitting in the wonder of what the answers could be. And I find more joy out of that than pursuing some kind of capital T truth. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think you're right about that. It is. There is something about wonder, you know, that, uh, I mean, if you think about all of our ancestors, they all lived in wander every day, you know, and then, and they made stories about the wander and, uh, you know, some of the stories, you know, modern man laughs at, but, uh, you know, if, if the rain falling is the God's crime or if it's, or if it's just really some scientific crap about what happens with rain molecule, I mean, at the end of the day, you're still getting rained on. You know what I mean? And it's, uh, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I mean, I'm not anti, I'm not anti science, obviously. I don't, I hope I don't have to say that, but it's, it's just, uh, in, I mean, a lot of the things that I, that I try to pursue now are not things that you ever could have a scientific answer for anyway. And so, uh, I mean, at least not not the way I currently understand things. So, you know, it, it's fun living in the wonder of of uh, of life. You know, it's beautiful. And what I like about your music too is, if you look at what you do on stage and how they wind up recorded, like the bones are still there, but you're not afraid to like experiment or do something different when you're recording them, whether it be adding something to your verse or, um, you know, the drum beat on some songs like, like Alabama astronaut was the, the one I was listening to. It's like almost like a, uh, hip hop drum beat, almost what you're putting under there. So you're not afraid to like, go further than what just you can do on stage. When I made my two studio albums, I kind of looked at it as a, as a way to be in. I kind of looked at it as an artistic project, as opposed to just trying to replicate something that I do on a stage. You know, I, I put out a live album, uh, in the middle of those because people had said, I want to hear what you do on stage. 
<laughs> I'm on a record of what you do on stage. So I made it. And so, so there's like a, there's a, a live record in the middle of them and I'll probably release another live record one day. But like when I go to the studio, at least in those first two times, I wanted it to be, uh, I wanted it to have like a art, like a creative thing as well. And you know, I've received both praise and criticism for that. But uh, at the end of the day, um, man, I just make what I feel like making, you know, and uh, and I love it when it resonates with people. And uh, yeah, yeah, that 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 drum. So I actually, as far as that particular song, I actually wrote that song to that beat that song originated that was the origination of it was that <clears throat> that that uh soundscape that beat was what i wrote that song to then i adapted it to guitar so i could play it at my live shows did doing stuff with the the punk band psych piece kind of start simultaneous as to your kind of songwriter thing? Actually, my first shows, uh, so my first, what I call my, my, I mean, my first public performance was at a songwriter contest. So it was just me with a guitar. Uh, that's what kind of, that was what, when I was like, oh, wow, I can, uh, I can sing my songs and they, they can resonate with people and other people found them meaningful and i was like oh man this is great but my very so then my very first show that i booked was in december of 2015 and i opened for the psych piece and so <laughs> i played my songs which back in those days i i was thinking that the psych peas were better than like that that there was more potential in me like get I, I i thought that more people would appreciate the psych piece than would appreciate my songs that i had written and i performed solo so um so whenever i uh so my first shows were all psych piece shows that i opened for and then i i found out pretty quickly that people were coming to hear my solo stuff and and uh not so much the psych piece you know but i mean i wrote all that stuff too uh all those psych piece songs i wrote and uh i at that time the band was composed of a couple of friends of mine and uh from uh from the, some military friends of mine and, and so you know we weren't as good as we became after so then then after like a year the uh the guy that was playing drums for us he left well then we replaced him with the drummer and bass player from the red clay strays who are some of my my good buddies and that kind of really took the took the level the quality of musicianship up to a notch, up a notch and then Yeah. So, I, and then we, you know, we recorded and, uh, we, we, so, I mean, I guess in totality, the psych piece of that we've played 35 shows maybe over the last, uh, six years, but 
here lately, you know, it's, it's, it, we're lucky to get a couple of shows in a year just because I'm so busy and, and they're, they're so busy. I mean, they're on tour with like Eric church and, uh, I mean, they're kind of like doing it big right now, you know, they played here not too long ago. They were at the loud. Yeah. They, uh, we actually did a joint show at, at, well, when it was called the V club, uh, years ago. Um, but yeah, they've played in Huntington a number of times. Yeah. They kind of, they kind of really nailed it at, uh, at Laurel Cove this year as well. When did you first start coming up to this area to play? Uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was, it was right after my first record came out. Um, I came up to the V club in 2018. I, uh, back then, back in those days, I was touring with a a really great cellist named Courtney Blackwell, and I toured with her for about a year. And we came up and played the V Club, and then it ended up uh, there was just some people there that that um, became Alexis Faye. I'm, uh, I'm not sure if you, so she was there, and she she really. Uh, become a fan and turn that a lot of people just got turned on to what I was doing. Then I started going up. I went one gig led to the other. And now, you know, up there and, um, it's all kind of serendipitous the way it all ha- happened. But you know, now it's like, uh, I'm, I play up there more than I do my hometown, man. I love that area. Um, you know, uh, whenever I, lived up in up in east kentucky and you know the appalachians there uh you know and i pastored there well i i I just always have had a had a had an affinity and affection for that area and um you know, I just started playing music and that happens to be some of the areas that, uh, I mean, you know, I got an art club and probably, probably 30% of the packages that I send out every month, they go to East Kentucky and West Virginia. You know, that's, that's where like my strongest base of support is. I mean, outside of, outside of Mobile and, uh, you know, I, in South Alabama, you know, maybe Birmingham and, and, you know, in Atlanta outside of that little area. Uh, I mean, it's, it's where I have the most support and, uh, and then also, you know, through my work with the, uh, with the holiness churches, I mean, they're all, I mean, most, you know, most of the ones that I work with are all in that area. You know, there's some in North Alabama, but, uh, most of them are all in, up there. I think it was in like episode three or four of Alabama Astronaut. Uh, you told Farrell Gibbs that doing the the work and making the podcast felt like church to you. Uh, with it now out into the world, I think, you know, it'll be out nearly a year now yeah uh next month yeah has that has that feeling only grown that you've seen the reaction to it and how people have kind of connected and responded with it yeah 
Yeah, it is. You know, so I, I, uh, whenever I was, um, this is, now this is going to be a pretty spooky story. I'm going to tell you, but this is all, I believe this. And I mean, it happened. So whenever I was living in North Georgia, this was when I was, uh, about 24 years old before I went to Kentucky to start pastoring a church. I was just a, a lay preacher in North Georgia. And, um, I used to, I used to pray like loud scream when I prayed, right? And I would, that we, we lived in all this, what they called Georgia power pulp woodland. It was just, uh, timber lands, you know, and there was these, it was these trails cut through and where I used to walk those and I would scream and cry and I'll pray. That's what I did whenever I was, uh, uh, whenever I was, offered this pat to pastor this church that's that's how i responded to it and one day after doing that i was trying to figure out if 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 it was if it was right for me to go up there and take that church at 25 years old you know i was young i had a wife and two children and uh i you know i was going to they didn't there was no money like they weren't paying me i was you know the whole time i never took a check from the church i always worked and uh i mean didn't believe in it but then uh we came up so 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 i came home after praying uh to this little trailer me and kathy rented it's 300 dollars a month 325 dollars a month i believe and we walked in that i walked in that trailer and i sat down on my chair and i opened my bible and it fell to this book of called deuteronomy which is uh traditionally not a place where folks go for answers per se, but, uh, I, I just opened it up and my eyes looked down on the page and it, and my eyes fell to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11. And it said, the land where you shall go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and it drinketh of the rains of heaven. And, uh, Middlesbrough was a land of hills and valleys. In fact, it was built in a meteorite crater. You could turn 360 degrees around in Middlesbrough and see nothing but mountains and it drank of the rains of heaven I mean every time it every time it rains in Middlesbrough it floods because there's no place for the water to go <laughs> and so I said that's the answer and so I told that church I was coming I drove up to Middlesbrough with my wife and two children we bought a little tiny house for forty thousand dollars in Lee County Virginia right across the, the state line and uh, I got me a job working for a, uh, uh, a company called H.T. Hackney, where I drove around get, taking, taking uh, groceries to little mom-and-pop stores all in the East Kentucky mountains. And uh, I started pastoring that church, and then it felt like I just got abandoned, man. It felt like I did, I could, I'd never heard from God again. And uh, I felt like I was abandoned in the field. And then I left the church, you know, a few years later and uh, not ever really having peace about anything about what had happened with my life. Just I was kind of living out of a sense of survival and not purpose or anything like that. And I uh, was really living for my kids and my wife more than I was living for myself. And faith just waxed and waned, man. It's like I never could get any... Um, peace with all of that well then it was through the it 
I started making this podcast right in the middle of the pandemic started go and and you know it wasn't by intention but you know where I ended up was Middlesbrough Kentucky Middlesbrough happens to be the hub for for five or six different serpent handling churches that I was going to so I was going to Middlesbrough for the first time in my in my life since I had left and I was going up there and I was staying in Middlesbrough and I was revisiting my old church and places where I'd lived and places where I had memories and things. And I was on this very purposeful mission and it was like church. And, uh, and I did regain so much and of what I had lost. And, uh, and it brought back to my memory that time that I, sh- I, I believed with everything in me, God told me the land where I was going to possess it was a land of hills and of valleys. And it drank it through the rains of heaven. And I was like, had I not gone to Middlesbrough, Kentucky in my mid-twenties and failed like I did, and had I not um, left there and had the decades-long struggle that I had, um, it... Uh, there's no way in hell that any of that would have ever happened. And so the creation of that podcast not only was church for me, but it provided it provided purpose for for a decade's worth of suffering and and lostness. You almost reclaimed your past in a way yes it 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 helped me embrace who i am and 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 what i've done and and see meaning in it you get the nice full circle moment too of having that encounter with jamie coots uh and him providing a sense of solace during this very dark time in millsboro to then years later worked so closely and get to know his son too. Yeah. His son, Cody gave me Jamie's, his father's guitar, Timber Rattler guitar strap. And I mean, it's the, I mean, it's probably, it means more to me than almost anything, any material possession in this world. And not because of what it is, but because of why it was given. And, uh, and what it, what it has, just what the whole journey, uh, you know, we were, we relate, we relate to our, our, we interact with the world and stories, man. And, uh, and it, it's just the most unbelievable story. And, uh, and I get to live it, you know, and it's like, uh. Yeah, man, it's like, it's, it's, it's just such a, it's been such a joyous, like this past year has been one of, one of the best years of my life. Just, uh, you know, and it's, it's a great, you know, I'm great. I'm grateful for, for what we made. I'm grateful for the podcast. I think that I will still be proud of it in a decade and I will. And I and I and I believe I'll still be proud of it when I'm on my deathbed. But uh, and hopefully my children will be proud of it for many years from then. But uh, uh, 
but that whole process, that journey, had there been no podcast, would still be uh, impactful. Had there not been the podcast, but you still took the journey and you still went to these churches and observed this music and really got to know them, you would still have some of the greatest relationships in your life, show or not, no show. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sorry I'm going next weekend. I mean, next weekend I'm going to homecoming. And it'd be so, like so many of the um, other media or pieces of journalism about these churches, they go to maybe one or two services, they capture the idea that's in their head and then they present that to the world instead of really digging in and getting to know the people at these churches beyond the surface level um, that I'm sure part of the, the reason you've been able to connect with them so much is this desire to, once you actually did start making me podcast, um, make them feel seen and respect them in a way that so many other people have neglected to. Absolutely, man. I, I tell you, I was uh, sitting outside of a, uh, I, we went out to eat with uh, 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 some, some serpent, a serpent handler couple, uh, uh, husband and wife that uh, me and me and my wife went out to eat with them about, three weeks ago, maybe, I don't know, man, time's going by so fast. Maybe it was three months ago. I don't know. <laughs> it was, uh, I, it was, uh, probably like, anyway, um, we were, we showed them the book. Uh, uh, you know, I just, I just got these books in, uh, on Monday. Uh, I've, I've got, uh, a book called, uh, with signs following, and it's portraits and it's stories that I gathered um, over the last three years that I've painted. Uh, so it's like, I think there's 40 something paintings along with s stories that I collected about the people depicted in the paintings. And then there's a little a story, the, the brief story that I wrote about how I came to do that work. And, I was with that come when we showed it to them for the first time, you know, I mean, they had seen a lot of the paintings, but you know, they, they opened it. And when they opened it, they both, they read the forward, you know, which I dedicated to them. And, uh, they both started weeping and, uh, and they just said, it's so beautiful. And, um, You know, some somebody could buy the book and look at it and say uh, they could say it's the greatest thing they ever read or they could say, I hate it. And it's terrible. It won't mean it as much to me as as that, you know, because these are people that have 100 percent been portrayed in media on on multiple occasions uh in the past couple of decades specifically them in ways that were derogatory in ways that uh 
that unfair. that they're the punchline of yeah. something. And it's just really it's and it's and some of it ain't even like some of it is that uh, like a lot of it is that, and then some of it is just I lost so much respect for journalists. You know, and I know that not all journalists are bad, but having been so close now to to seeing this up close, and I mean publications like National Geographic, buddy, like things that I grew up just like, oh, National Geographic, I mean, that's a hundred, you know, that's the best of the best, you would think. But um, the it's like the opposite of integrity, man. And, uh, and, and I think that there's an element that they know that these people aren't going to call the law or they're not going to go get a lawyer. They're not going to sue them. So they can just, they just feel free to do what they do and to make something as sensational as possible. So as to make somebody click on a link or somebody to re up their subscription or, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, there was an article that came out like it came out during the creation of the podcast. So it was like 2021 or something like that. And it came out in National Geographic and there were blatant, there are blatant like falsehoods in there that could have like with a simple phone call to one to to one of the people in the know, it could have been totally clarified, but you, you, and, and then the way that the person portrayed themselves in the article as having been what I think they, the word they use is embedded, embedded, like, like you're going on the front lines of uh, some Palestinian conflict and you've embedded yourself, you know, it's like, what are you talking about embedded? Mm -hmm. Like, why are you treating it like war reporting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just really disgusting, man. And uh, anyway, it's put. It's it's like it's 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 tempered the way that I read that I, that I that I consume information via journalists now because especially on people that are considered outside of you know. Uh, their their readership. The thing I always go back to is like you mentioned how the serpents are such a small part of like a longer service too that like they don't come out towards the end after you've been there a while and to focus on that's doing a disservice to the the whole service and the presentation and the songs and everything. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the one thing that kind of, um, is sensational, you know, but there's, I mean, there's five signs that they, that they all follow. And, uh, it is, it's, it's just like the term serpent handler. That's, that ain't a word they gave themselves. That was, that was no. a title that other people bestowed upon them because, uh, you know, they also spoke in tongues. They also professed to heal the sick. They also pro professed to cast out devils. But the, that was the one thing that they did that, that differentiated them. So they called them. One where they draw the line. Yeah, so they call it, oh, well, them are the serpent handlers. The episode to where uh, you try to come to 
terms with the idea of um like well you can't pick and choose so if you're going to do three of them why aren't you doing all of them or whatever it's the one that i think is maybe my favorite of the series too and then Farrell goes and talks to the the guy from uh, Notre Dame, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, because that is such like uh, like you hear that argument and you're like, yeah, no, I can see why they do the snakes. Then, like, I don't want to touch the snakes, but it makes sense to me, and their argument is compelling enough to me that I'm not going to point and laugh and say, oh, look at them. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, that's the way I've, that's the realization that I came to. See, all that, all that is just like, uh, all that was me working out what it was that I was seeing. Because, because immediately upon the first sight of the snake, the first thing you say is, oh, that's crazy. But, okay, you go there for six months and you see the snake a lot and and then you see like what they would call victory over the serpents happen quite a bit i mean i've yet to see anybody get bit man i've seen hundreds and hundreds of snakes being handled i've never seen anybody getting bit not saying that they haven't been bit or that they're not going to be bit in the future but I almost am certain that the day I picked up a serpent, that thing would bite the living hell out of me. You know what I mean? I like, I, I see these things. I there's no way I'm doing well. So, that, so at first you're immediately like, that's crazy. But then you go and, and you're like, man, what's going on here? You know, why, why is this happening? And so then you start investigating and you hear it. it you hear them actually talk about why it is that what they're doing. And one of the difference makers for me was when I found out that they know that they might get bit. Because for a long time I thought, well, they just, they don't think they're going to get bit. But no, they they understand that they might be bit. And they might suffer for it. And they might even die for it. But it's all through obedience. <laughs> like, dude, if you're going to be a biblical literalist, be a biblical literalist, you know? If you're going to say... I follow the words of Christ. I mean, to me, it's more respectful if you follow them, even in spite of cost, than only follow the ones that make you feel warm and fuzzy or the ones that, you know, everybody wants uh, Everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die, you know, that kind of thing. It's like... Uh, I, you know, you you can get around in a lot of ways, and I've I mean I've heard I've heard a lot of it, but you know, you know they were like you know a lot of people say oh, it's just a it's just a single verse uh, that they're going off of. No, it's the last words of Jesus. <laughs> so, Seems pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it's the last words of Jesus before boom, he's gone, and he. Yeah. So like, uh, to me, uh, and, and if you know, if, if you believe in Jesus being the son of God, then you know that he's all knowing. well, he had perfect knowledge that he was about to leave. And so the very last commandment that he gave to his disciples, the minute before he leaves would seem to be a pretty important, uh, command to me. And that's the way they view it. So, 
so like regardless of like uh and 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 me saying that is is you know i'm i'm not trying to preach this message but i'm just trying to say like it's not in it's not insanity there's there's actual a logic behind what they do and you may not agree with the logic and and you know you don't have to but just saying oh that's nuts it's different than when you actually try to understand because it turns to find out buddy they're they're really great people and i they're some of my best friends at this point and I, and and i do not agree with them on every theological point that there is that they believe i do not and uh but here's the beautiful thing they're okay with that nobody's ever tried to put a snake on me they know I ain't touching no snake, you know? Um, but I go to church. I took my nine-year-old son to church a, a couple months ago, you know? And he loved it. You know what he called it? The music church. He goes, Daddy, that was fun. That was a music church. I was like, yeah, man, it was great, wasn't it, buddy? He loved it, you know? And uh, anyway, man, I, I don't mean to get off and all that, but. It is a, it feels like a more pure expression of faith than any of this mega church money bullshit. Oh. Like these holiness churches, they're not, they're not making money. They're just expressing what they believe in this very pure way. Yeah. Going off the book and they aren't trying to sell you anything either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the serpent handlers aren't the ones uh, on TV begging for your money. Uh, they're not, they're not trying to build a church that looks like a Walmart super center. You know, I mean, I, I detest all that stuff. I've never, I've never been able to jive with any of that. Even when I, you know, I was, I was a Baptist preacher, but we were not, Southern Baptists. We were independent fundamental Baptists. We were the Baptists that the other Baptists didn't want to have nothing to do with. You know, we were the poor people Baptists, you know. It was like even back then I couldn't stand the uh the the money changing in the temple. And uh but especially now, like I I have I have no I have no appetite for for uh Western, modern, Americanized, nationalistic uh, Christianity. That's what a small C. Keep up to date with Abe Partridge on Facebook or Instagram. You can find his podcast, Alabama Astronaut, on all major podcast platforms. Every time I see him live, I am moved and captivated in new ways. There is no other artist like him. Thank you for listening to Commonplace. If you liked today's episode, I ask that you subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend. These are free ways that help the show in a big way. The show is hosted and produced by me, Nathan Thomas. Our theme song is Rescio by Goodwolf from the album Car in the Woods. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Commonplace.